to who the king was, and the king was very close to him, saw something was wrong with him. This was, Nehemiah didn't say anything, but the king saw something was bothering him. He's like, Nehemiah, why are you so downcast? Why are you so upset? Nehemiah said, well, you know, the walls of the people, my people's city are laying in destruction. The city's in destruction, and it's weighing on me. It's on my heart. Now, I'm not quoting that, but that's the idea behind it. And so the king said, well, that shouldn't be the case. So he gave him some money. He gave him troops. He gave him supplies. He gave him everything that he would need, letters, authorization, to go back to Jerusalem. And to and he had the authority to do it and to rebuild the walls of the city and to rebuild portions of the city. Now, kind of interestingly, the king's uh, main concern with Nehemiah wasn't whether or not he was going to go rebuild the walls of the city. His main concern was, when will you come back? And what that always struck me as was something that, 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 was, that struck me as to a friendship, that struck me as to a closeness between the king and Nehemiah. Because he, he wanted to know, when will you be back? You know, and that's kind of a question you ask somebody you care about, isn't it? You know, I mean, it, it, Nehemiah wasn't you know, anybody that was that key as far as you look at the political structure of it and all the rest of that, but he was key to the king. And so the king wanted to know when he'd be back. And so that always spoke to me kind of a, almost a tenderness in the sense that he was saying, you know, I really want you to come back, and the sooner the better. And, uh, and that just spoke to me as to their friendship. It spoke to me as to their relationship and the depth of the relationship that they had. And so Nehemiah went off uh, to Jerusalem. He had, again, he had workers. He had supplies. He had the money from the king. He had what he needed. And he had the letters so he could pass through all the provinces. And once he got there, there were certain people that were caretakers of the Babylonian Empire that were watching over Jerusalem. And you got to understand, these people were out for their own gain. That nobody that gave any kind of care toward Jerusalem or, or Judah or Israel was going to be a puppet of Babylon watching it over. That, that, that was not the case. And so what these people were, were they, they weren't principled people. They were just people that were out for their own gain, out for whatever they could get out of it. And so they were the people that were in charge. They were reliable to Babylon only because of the reliability of their own greed and the reliability of their own you know, selfishness to promote themselves. And so Nehemiah showed up with these letters. He, needed, he was a direct representative of the king, and he was threatening to the guys that were there, the guys that were supposedly overseeing the province, overseeing the area. And so he created this, this threat to them, to their power, to their source of income, to whatever they were feeding, to their position. So he was a direct threat to that. And, and so they were afraid of a couple of things. One, what Nehemiah was going to do as far as they were concerned. But also they were afraid that Nehemiah was going to rebuild these walls and then Jerusalem would rebel against the Babylonians and they would no longer have a position. In fact, not only would they no longer have a position, but they would also they'd be looked at as being traitors by their own people if Israel was reestablished. Think about this in terms of the New Testament tax collector. All right? 
I found the chosen last night. Yeah, it was bought by a, um, a TV network for a questionable Christian group, pseudo Christian group, and uh, kind of interestingly. But anyway, I watched it, and there's a tax collector in that show. The Chosen is a story about the life of Jesus. It's a dramatization because they they kind of look at interpersonal relationships, things. The main themes are there from the Gospels, but they, there are also things added that aren't in the Gospels to make it more interesting and compelling for people to watch. And so one of the people, and I was reading something last night, that the director was describing Matthew, who was a tax collector, that Jesus called to be a disciple. And so Matthew follows him around. If you've ever seen the show... The, it, it's funny because the guy who portrays Matthew does a really good job portraying him a certain way. And the director describes Matthew as being somewhere on the spectrum. And, and really, that's who he And he does portray that really well, like, like someone with Asperger's or, or something like that. And so, uh, and, and so you got these tax collectors that were puppets of the Roman Empire. They were... They weren't puppets exactly. They were making money. And, and they were allowed by the Romans to skim a certain amount of money. In other words, if every person owed a dollar taxes, they could charge them a dollar fifty. And then they could take the fifty cents and just pass the dollar on to Rome. Rome didn't care. They considered the extra fifty cents to be overhead. Now I'm making those numbers up, but you understand what I'm saying, right? So that was their overhead. That's how they paid the tax collectors. Taxes had to cheat the people that were bringing taxes to them. And that's how they were paid. And so the people who became tax collectors generally were people that were outcasts, people that uh, were socially awkward, that didn't have a lot of friends, didn't really care much about friends or family and all that, which makes sense why they would make Matthew in the story on the spectrum somewhere. Because likely a person that was on the spectrum living in that day and age would have been considered weird and kind of an outcast, and people wouldn't have been their friend anyway. And so because he was already weird, he looked at this as an opportunity, and, and a lot of the tax collectors looked at these opportunities because they really weren't that popular anyhow to go ahead and make some money. And they had a certain amount of power because they had the whole Roman government backing them up, and, and they were able to make money off of what they were doing, and so they became rich. So you look at that, and you look at that, okay, well, they had a pretty secure position. Now imagine if something happened, or the day came, which it eventually did, that the Romans were going to be kicked out of there. Would you still want to be a tax collector on the verge of the collapse of the Roman Empire in Palestine? Probably not. Why? Because as soon as they were gone, and as soon as your backing was gone, as far as what you could do, you know, you didn't have the Roman army anymore backing you up, and you've been cheating people for your whole adult life, and they know you've been cheating them for your whole adult life. Guess what's going to happen to you? Nothing good. Yeah, because you're a traitor. You are a traitor. And so, whoever these guys were, Sam Ballot and the rest of these guys that were put up as being the people say, oh, well, these guys are in charge. Yeah, well, they were traitors. And so they see Nehemiah coming from Babylon with all this material and all these letters from the king, and, and they're going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They're looking at this, they're thinking, the end is near. 
And because the end is near, guess what? That means their end is near. Because they're going to be the traitors, and they're going to be the ones that their people are going to turn on, and they're going to take it out on them. They've been cheating them. They've been ruling over them. Because they've been rich off of them. All things that tax collectors were doing, that's what they were doing. And so you kind of understand the motivation. So, they don't like Nehemiah. They don't like him at all. And they want to ruin him. And that's kind of the story we have here. Now, Nehemiah had made friends with certain people when he returned. And the reason that's important is because, I mean, you, you do. You meet people. And you come back. And so he'd come back to Jerusalem. He started getting some work going. Got some work teams going. They were starting to rebuild the wall. He made friends with this guy. Shemaiah was his name. And so Shemaiah had invited him over to his house. And so Nehemiah went over to the house of Shemaiah. And Shemaiah was somewhat of a prophet. And Shemaiah began to prophesy to Nehemiah, telling him that, you know, he's in danger. And someone's going to kill him. And then he needs to go hide himself in the temple. And he needs to go, you know, put himself in, into seclusion so that nobody, that guy doesn't come and, and kill him. Well, what happened was, is that unknown to Nehemiah, Shemaiah had been bribed by Sam Ballot, who was one of the governor guys that was in there, who was going to be a traitor. And so he had hired this person to prophesy to Nehemiah in order to scare him. He wanted to make him fearful. And so we're picking up the story here of what was going on. Picking up the story about how there were these prophets that had been paid off. And there were these prophets that had been bribed. And they were coming, and they were not only coming to Nehemiah, but they were coming to the people, and they were prophesying certain things. I just did air quotes. Prophesying certain things to make people afraid. To cause fear. And if you've learned anything over the last couple of years, what do you learn about fear? What does it do in our lives? It controls people. How does it control them? Okay, and some people it freezes. In other words, they just stop doing what they're doing. And you saw that all over the place. When, when all this hit and people became afraid. And, and our modern day prophets you know, began to say all this doom and gloom over them. People were staying in their houses. People were depressed. People were having trouble getting out doing what they were doing. Even after... You know, they started saying, okay, well, you can get out, go back to work. People still didn't go to work. People still didn't go back to what they were doing before. And, I mean, people still aren't doing the things that they were doing before. Still. And you see that it has this, this effect on people that they just, they freeze up. They freeze up. Somebody tell me what to do. Somebody tell me where to go. Somebody tell me what to think. Somebody tell me what's safe. Somebody tell me what's not safe. Somebody tell me what what matters, what doesn't matter. And you start getting this idea. It's like, well, that's just human nature. And if you make people afraid, you can control them. And so you have Nehemiah here. He's got all these letters from the king. He's got all these materials from the king. I mean, he is a personal friend of the king of Babylon, most powerful king in their whole part of the world. And yet, when these people began to prophesy, their sole intent was to freeze him. 
But not only to freeze him, but to freeze the people that were working for him. And he had a lot of people working for him on that wall. I want you to think about it this way. All the walls, and some of the walls are still there, but you think about the task that was ahead of them. That they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They were able to rebuild. Now listen to this. They were able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. And understand that's by hand. It took three years for the state of New York to build a bridge over the thruway by my house. Three years. Three years. I wrote my senator. You've heard this story, but I wrote my senator, my state senator. I said, hey, Mr. DeFranco, that's back then when he was the state senator. DeFrancisco, excuse me. Hey, Mr. DeFrancisco. I said, it, it is now going on three years they've been building this bridge on Buckley Road going over the thruway. Three years. And I, I estimated, I said, if they had taken this long to build every bridge going over the thruway, the thruway just in the building of bridges, not even laying of road, the building of bridges would have taken over 700 years. <laughs> Something's not right. Could you look into this, please? Yes. They were done within a month after that. Alright? But somebody, I mean, I, who knows? So, if you think about a city with walls, okay? And they, and they were just rubble. And you're doing this by hand. Maybe you got a mule or something. I don't know. You know, like a donkey. But, but you're moving stuff basically by hand. And they're able to rebuild those walls in 52 days. That's nuts. That's not long at all. That's supernatural. And I mean, they were working. Not only were they working just concentrating on the wall, but they had to wear swords because they were under the constant threat of attack. And so they were even divided in what they were doing. They were being threatened the whole time. And so then you got these jokers, right? These prophet people trying to scare them. So they're going about the business, going about doing whatever they're going to do, and you got these guys trying to scare them by giving them false words. And so you see this verse here. I do want to point out, too, uh, that he names somebody in this verse, kind of interestingly. Noadiah. Noadiah is named in this verse. That's a female. It's the only time she's mentioned anywhere in the Bible. But she's a prophetess. Alright? And, and it says that in the King James Version. The authorized version, 1611. But some of the other versions doesn't say that. It just says a prophet. You know, because you can't use a female term in the newer versions. But in the old version, they let you know that's a female name. Okay? And that was a female prophet. And I want to point that out because it's important to understand that females were prophetesses. His word. You know, you think in terms of Miriam. Who was Miriam? Anybody know? Yeah. Yeah. How about Deborah? A judge, but also a prophetess. You got Huldah? Prophetess. Huldah. New Testament wise, you got Anna. She was the old lady prophetess that <laughs> prophesied over Jesus. 
Right? I just heard that story today. Gave the good word. Yeah. And so you see through those uh, just Old Testament, New Testament type things, there were female prophets, female prophets. Now, this is a little bit controversial, but I'm going to share this with you because this is what I believe. And lately, I just share what I believe, so I'm just going to share it. But in, in Romans 16, 7, there's a person named in that verse there, uh, Junia, who's named among the apostles. And that's a female name. You never hear about her anywhere else, but you heard about her there. If you want to look it up, Romans 16, 7 is the reference to it. And I've always believed Junia you know, is an apostle, or apostoless, whatever they're called. So, uh, I've never been one to hold back leadership from females, ever. In fact, uh, I, it's from the start of my ministry, empowering females to go about the work of the kingdom. Because I believe in it. And I believe God uses that. And, uh, the, and I've, I've recognized over the years that there are just certain things that a uh, female will be better at than I am. Yeah. yeah. You might be able to figure that out if you've known me for a few years. <laughs> I'm pretty good at confrontation or if i got to say something, but maybe not so good at, you know, encouraging people the way I should. And so I need help with that. And, uh, and I do believe, and I'll say that I do believe disciples are fathered. They're not mothered. I do believe that. But I just think that females sometimes do a little better job with some people than I can do. So, and in that fathering process. And I'll leave it at that. So, uh, you see uh, Nehemiah, he speaks a prayer here. And I'm going to refer to it as a prophetic prayer. And basically, here's what his prayer does. And I want you to hear this. See if this makes any sense to you. He prays a prophetic prayer to put God's own cause, God's own cause, into God's own hands. Okay? That's what he does. Another word is genius, right? Another word, he's making a statement. And he's saying it to God. He's prophesying, praying this to God. Is that his hands are off. You know, Nehemiah had his job to do. And he's going to do it. He, he was going to do it. But one thing that stands out about Nehemiah is that he was steadfastly going after what he was there to do. And that was it. That he wasn't being swayed to the left, he wasn't being swayed to the right, he wasn't being convinced of this, he wasn't going to live in fear, he wasn't going to live in terror, but he was just moving forward, plowing forward into what God had sent him there to do. That was it. And there's something really basic about that, something really simple about that, but something really important about that for us to understand. Because Nehemiah is a great example Great example of just getting about it and doing what you're supposed to do, regardless of what's happening around you. There's been times in my ministry where things haven't gone our way, my way. Whether it's my way, June's way, our way, whoever's way it is, they just haven't gone our way. 
but you've got to keep going. And, and if I've been able to somehow give that to you, then I'm really happy about that. If you've been able to pick that up from me over the years, that, oh, yeah, this isn't, ha- this isn't going my way. Right, I'm going to keep going anyway. That person over there doesn't like you. Yeah, still going. That person over there, they're, they're trying to ruin you. Yeah, I'm just going to keep going. That guy, he's trying to give you a bad reputation. I know. Keep going. Keep going. I remember I had a pastor one time. There was a higher up. Uh, we were part of a, a uh, for lack of a better word, a denomination. It wasn't really a denomination, a movement or something. But we were part of a movement, and one of the higher ups in the movement decided, you know, just he's going to ruin me. And so he just, you know, called everybody I knew, and and just, you know, and people he called believed him, and you know, things were doors were shut. All these things happened because of it. And I just kept going. And there was a pastor that was part of the same movement. He contacted me privately. Because he'd been a part of the whole thing the whole time. And he knew what was up. He knew what was up with me. He knew what was up with this other guy. He had been a part of it the whole time. But he contacted me privately. And I'll, I'll always hold on to this. He looked at me. He's like, I don't know how you keep going. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you just keep going. Like, nothing's happening. I'm like, what else am I going to do? Am I going to forsake what God's called me to do? Am I going to forsake what God's told me? I don't have anything better to do. I'm going to go about what he has for me. He's like, well, I just want to tell you that that's impressive. And this was an older guy. He was like in his 60s at the time. He's like, he's like, I want you to know I learned something from you. This. Like, cool. Because I was young, you know. Kind of an idiot. But I figured that out. And and so that encouraged me that, that even though you know I got somebody like really just trying to ruin your life, you know, if you ever had anybody try to ruin your life that had the power to do it, that's frustrating because there's not much you're going to do. What are you going to say? Oh, he's lying, <laughs> and then you're like an idiot, right? So it's just like yeah, whatever. Yeah, opinions vary, but that's how it goes. So you just keep doing what you're doing. Because to me, the best. Um, I don't know how I would say this. The best way to just deflect whatever's happening is just keep going about what God's called you to do. That's the only way I know. You stay at it. Because, I mean, if you quit in the middle of something, it's almost like you're just agreeing with people. You agree with the lies. And you agree with them trying to ruin your life. Oh, yeah, my life's ruined. Okay. I give up. No. No. Nehemiah... I mean, they wrote the king trying to make Nehemiah look bad. They, they talked to the people trying to make him look bad. They prophesied. You know, thus saith the Lord prophecies about just bad things, about horrible things. And they're trying to ruin him, trying to ruin his reputation, trying to scare him, trying to scare him out of what they're doing. He just kept going. And I just want to encourage you to learn that from that guy. You might not know anything about Nehemiah, which I don't care. You know what you know about him or you don't know about him. But he is a central figure in the history of Israel and in what happened and what was going on hundreds of years later when Jesus came around. That, that kind of flavor of Judaism that Jesus was a part of, 
was directly influenced by Nehemiah and Ezra during this time frame in the return to Jerusalem. And so he is a central figure to them, but one of the most important things, more than him being a reformer, more than him being whatever else he was, the most important thing that we can learn from him is that despite whatever people try to do to you, you keep going in what God has for you. Just keep going. And there's something powerful about the person who's willing to just keep going, no matter what. And, and I, you know, I don't know how else to explain it. Some of you have that in you. I know you do. And I've seen it. I've seen it. Because things like that manifest in the physical. Alright? Some of you know I'm kind of an endurance athlete. I love just doing stuff like that. Well, I shouldn't love the strong word. I like doing stuff like that. And, and, and there are people that I go with and they just keep going. I'll keep going. You're going to keep going? Keep going. And it manifests physically. There's a mentality to that. They just keep, keep going. When are we going to stop? When we're done. That's all. So let's just keep going. So he keeps going. But in this prayer, he asks, he, 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 this is his prayer. Again, what did I say? He's going to put God's own cause, why he was there, rebuilding the wall, rebuilding Jerusalem. He's going to put his own cause into God's own hands. Okay? That's important. Because it's not in his hand, it's in God's hand. He's just going to keep going. He's just going to keep going. We've got all these people coming against us, we're going to keep going. We've got all these people, they, they're saying all these lies and this stuff, we're going to keep going. And he takes that cause and he puts that back into God's hand. And here's what he prays. In, again, in the King James, in the authorized version, he uses this phrase, but think on. Think upon this, is what he says. And some of you in the Bible says, consider this. But you think upon this. And, and think upon these people. These people that have been bribed. These people that are claiming to be prophets. And maybe they were, but they weren't doing it based on what God was saying. They were doing it based on the amount of cash they were given. And so they were prophesying based on the wrong reasons. And Nehemiah knew something about every one of them, and that is that God knows their heart. But God also knew Nehemiah's heart. Right? If God knows the hearts of the people that were lying and that were false prophesying, He also knows Nehemiah's heart. And He's just praying this prayer, and He's like, well, think upon this, God. Judge between me and them. You bold enough to pray that? Do you understand why that's a bold prayer? Because everybody thinks they're right, but sometimes we're not, right? Seriously? Right. So, I mean, we all think we're right. A lot of times. And, and that's a bold prayer to say, judge between me and them. Okay, that's basically what he's saying. That's a bold prayer. You bold enough to pray that? I prayed it a couple times in my life, but not every day. Because I'm not that bold all the time. But sometimes I am. And Nehemiah was that bold right here. Because he had come 
convinced God sent him. He had come convinced God commissioned him. He had come convinced that God had put him into that place for such a time as that to go about his work and to go about the business God called him to. He was convinced of it. And so these people who were lying, these people who were spreading these false rumors, false prophecies, all the things like that, he was bold enough to say, okay, God, judge between me and them. You know my heart, you know their heart. I remember one time I prayed that. I was uh, going through a hard time in ministry. And I was having, uh, there were a couple guys that were prophets that were a part of, and I'm not denying they were prophets because they were prophets, but they were uh, causing division in what I was doing in the ministry I was a part of. And so, uh, specifically, there was a younger, there were brothers, and the younger brother was just really just hammering away, trying to make me look bad, him look good. Uh, and trying to get people away from me and just trying to divide the ministry. And I can remember, I I said this right in front of him too. I was talking to him, and I'm like, you got to stop this. No, you know, you're wrong, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, all right, well, here's what I'm going to tell you right now. I said, I want God to look at my heart. I want God to look at your heart. Let him be the judge. And we'll go from there. And like I said, that's not something I'd pray every day. That's not something I'd say every day. But right then, in that moment, that's what needed to be said. And he did. And the thing about it is, it's not like when you pray something like that, you're telling God when and how, because you can't do that. But in God's time, whatever that means, and in whatever way he chooses, he calls people to account. And so Nehemiah, leaving this in God's hands, he's like, well, think upon this, you know, consider this. And he's laying it out, just between me, you know my heart, you know their heart, in your way and in your time, I leave this in your hands, I put your cause back into your own hands. There you go. And that's the end of it. And so then he went about his business. That's why these verses and the takeaway is so important. The takeaway is this, is that as we align ourselves with God and we commit our cause to Him, then we can pray a thing like that. It's to stay aligned with Him. It's to stay in His will, His purpose, and His plan for your life. And then you can say things like that. Then you can commit things to him like that. Because I'm going to commit what? I'm going to commit your cause into your own hands. That's, that's a pretty safe move, really. And as long as you're not the one straying away from that cause, as you're, as you're not the one straying away from his will, his purpose, or his plan, then that's a pretty safe prayer. It really is. But you have to be bold enough to stand and say, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm aligned with what God has for my life. And if you can say that, then you can pray this. So what does that tell you? You need to know where you're at. That's what it tells you. And, and my experience is if you're doing nothing for the kingdom, then the devil doesn't bother with you much. Why would he? You're, you're dormant. You're stagnated. 
what good are you doing anyhow? Where's he going to concentrate? He has limited resources. What would he concentrate his resources on? He concentrates his resources on what's actually moving and what's actually doing something. And so it's the person that isn't just following a ritual, isn't just following a pattern. You know, like the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts, where they watched Christians that were uh, praying and, and speaking deliverance over people and casting demons out of people. They watched them do it, and they're like, all right, well, we can do that. And so they just mimicked what they were doing. So they were just going up to people, and they're, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out. And it worked for a while. They just followed the pattern. And so we're just going to follow this pattern, follow this pattern. And, and so it did for a while until the demons figured out they were just following a pattern. They didn't have real authority of themselves. Turned on them and just tore them up. That's what happened. And that's why I'm following patterns. So you talk to people, it's like, well, how do you do ministry? Well, just follow these you know, seven steps of ministry and it'll work good. Well, it'll work for a while. You know what happens after a while? get torn up because it isn't yours. It's not what God's called you to do, maybe. It's not what God spoke to you. It's not the revelation that you've been given. It'll work for a while. It'll either produce something that does nothing or it'll produce something that does do something and you're going to get torn up. That's the way it goes. How do I know that? Seeing it. Both sides of it. Produces something that doesn't do anything. Living happy. Doing nothing. Or, produces something that does do something, but it's not yours. You don't own it. Get torn up. Now, you think about young guys that they, they get going and something's working, 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 but, man, they just get torn up by the devil. What does that look like? That looks like... You know, whatever happens, like having sex with your secretary or something. I don't know how it turns out. But that's how it ends up. And they get in all kinds of trouble and or they're embezzling money or or temptation overtakes them or whatever it is. Who knows? I don't know. Don't care really. Not my business. But you gotta own it. You gotta own whatever you're doing. So like, this is what God has for me, this is what I'm doing, I own it. That's it. Okay. By own it, I just mean that you know, you know, you know, this is what God has for me, and you're going to get out and you're going to do it. That's it. So, he had to consider the spirit of the prophets. It wasn't their words. He knew their words were lies, but he had to teach people how to consider the spirit of the prophets. Not so hard to teach people because if you run into a, a prophet that's kind of fancy, they'll they'll fool you. They'll fool you, and I've had that happen. I've had that happen with Christians that I've trained and sent somewhere, and and they just get fooled because it sounds good, or they're really good at at what they're sounding or what they're saying, and it's hard to teach people to look at the spirit and and be able to see a person, and not just listen to fancy stuff. Because there's a lot fancier ways of going about things that, that we don't really do because I don't teach it. And 
Those of you that didn't come out of that kind of a background, you don't even know what I'm talking about. Good. Forget I said it. But what I'm trying to get at, there's ways of doing things that people, that they find it more attractive or it seems more spiritual. But maybe it's not. And to be able to look at the spirit of somebody and say, yeah, all right, nah, and not be taken in. So these people that were prophesying against Nehemiah, yeah, the Noadiah, I mean, here's a female prophet, a prophetess. There's not that many in the Bible. So she's kind of a rare commodity. So we got this prophetess. But you think about the prophetesses that we, we have prior to her. I mean, Miriam, she's pretty big time. I mean, she messed up and got leprosy, but whatever. She's pretty big time. You got Deborah, and, she, well, she did. I mean, same. And you got Deborah, she's a judge and a prophetess. I mean, that's cool. And, and so, you know, you're thinking, all right, well, maybe this is somebody important. So you got this prophetess prophesying, but you got to look at the spirit. you got to consider the spirit of the prophet. And so she was trying to deceive and destroy Nehemiah through fear. Not just her, but the other ones were too. They were being paid. And so they're trying to destroy his life through fear. And, and notice Nehemiah, he didn't try to punish them. He probably had the power to do it in a sense. He had all these letters from the king of Babylon. He had you know, men and workers with him. I mean, they probably could have just punished them somehow. But he didn't. So they spoke. They said their peace, and they were able to say whatever they wanted to say. He didn't try to discredit any of them. He took it to God. So he gave it to God, and it was kind of interesting that he just put it back into God's hands. But he wasn't hindered. He wasn't hindered in courage or, or, or vigilance. He wasn't hindered in anything. How do you know that? Because they finished the wall in 52 days. That's how you know that. The proof is in the results that he wasn't you know, hindered by this. That he wasn't stopped. That he wasn't slowed down. In fact, that's supernatural. They were able to finish it that fast. Something happened. That crazy took place that they allowed them to finish a wall in 52 days. Something happened. And I want to, I want to say this too, and, and you can hear this any way you want, but it's a great mischief, a great mischief to frighten God's people from their duties. And we watched, we watched that happen. We watched churches shut down for months on end. Ministries stopped for months on end. It is a great mischief to frighten God's people from their duties. A great mischief. And I'm not saying, I have no idea how this happened or why it happened, and I'm not saying it's because of this, but I just want to say, hey, think about this. Think about Andrew Cuomo, who I never liked. I didn't like his dad. All right, so don't get me wrong. All right, I didn't like Mario. Not a fan of Andrew. All right, I generally don't have any problem with mobsters, but these guys, I didn't like them. 
Either one. I'm old enough to remember both of them as governor. But that guy was on TV every day to the point that our missionary in Thailand would see him, that the people would see him in Thailand on television every day giving his update on COVID. And they were so impressed by him. They would comment to our missionary about what a nice man he is. You can see how nice he is just by how he talks. These are people in Thailand. This guy was known all over the world. Okay? Was popular all over the world. Won an Emmy, a special Emmy, for his daily briefings. Follow me. Alright? Right? Wrote a book, got a book deal. Wrote a book. Yeah. And was out of being governor within a year. Yeah. Kicked out in disgrace. How? How's that possible? I don't know. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that's what happened. It's a great mischief, a great mischief, to frighten God's people from their duties. And Nehemiah is one to testify that that's true. How did that happen? I don't know. I'm not claiming anything. I'm not proclaiming anything. I'm just saying, hey, think about that for a second. How weird that was. Because that's really weird. I didn't think we'd ever get rid of that guy. Ever. We couldn't get rid of his dad. Right? Somehow. That was it. There are a couple of verses about how we in the New Testament can respond. There's a couple of things I want you to learn from this. One is to put things back into God's hands. There it is. Just do it. Just put things back. And look at Nehemiah. He didn't, he didn't personally, he didn't try to punish them. He didn't try to discredit these people. He wasn't doing any of that. He just put it back into God's hands. So learn that. And then from Jesus, if you go to Luke 23:34, Luke 23:34, Jesus is on the cross. And you remember how Jesus prayed for those that were crucifying him? What did he say? They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Because what was the crucifixion really? It was God's plan, right? That was God's purpose for Jesus. That was His plan. That was what He had for Him. And Jesus knew that. In fact, earlier, you know, earlier in, in time, the time frame, He set His face toward Jerusalem. And the idea, the picture of that was He set His face like flint towards Jerusalem. Nothing was going to stop Him from getting to Jerusalem to fulfill what God, what the Father had for Him. He didn't do it. And so, placing that back into the Father's hands. Alright? Not His hands, but the Father's hands. And so there He was on the cross. And He got these people crucifying Him. Kind of like uh, Acts 19.32, I think it is, where they describe this big riot going on in Ephesus. 
And, and, uh, and this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. It says, some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another, but most did not even know why they were there. Yeah. Doesn't that describe a good mob to you? I think it's 1932. Something like that. Or 1923. 1932. One of them might be the stock market crash. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Yes. And so he gives us a model that we don't necessarily have to repeat that, but it's the same model here. It's like, well, Father, forgive them. They they really don't know what they're doing. Because the fact of the matter was they were doing the will of the Father in the sense that they were bringing about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, which was necessary for the redemption of the world. It was fulfilling the purposes that the Father had for Jesus in his life. And so that was his prayer for them. He handed back to the Father his own cause, put it back in his hand. And then think about Stephen, Acts 7.60. Stephen, did you find that in Acts 19? Yeah. What was it? What number? Was that some were shouting one thing? Some therefore cried one thing and some other for the assembly was confused. <laughs> and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. Okay, what was that verse? Uh, 1932. Yeah. Didn't I say that? Yeah. I said that. <laughs> Did I? Yeah. Oh, I think I said 32 first. Yeah, yeah. Should have been bolder. Yeah. All right. But then I thought about the stock market crash. That's 29, though. Yeah. Whatever. Acts 7.60, you get this account, Stephen, he's the first martyr in the church, he's a deacon, and he's out preaching, and the people that were there got all upset with him, and they started stoning him to death. And, uh, you know, we, we, if you've never seen, have you ever seen a, a depiction of a stoning? It's usually kind of fake because the rocks bounce off of people. Rocks really don't bounce off like that. They hit stud and then they fall down because they're heavy. And so, they're, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a gruesome thing. So they're stoning this guy. And even in the midst of stoning him, he makes this statement. Remember what he said? What was it? They don't know what they do. It's, it wasn't quite the same quote as Jesus, but he said, yeah, don't hold it. Don't hold it to their charge. Don't put it on their account. And there was some sense that as he was looking up into heaven, remember what he saw when he looked up into heaven? He saw the Father and he saw Jesus standing at his right hand. That's one of the rare times, one of the only times you see anyone describe Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He's usually sitting. But for Stephen's death, he was standing. And it was something that was happening there where Stephen takes that purpose and that plan and that cause and he puts it back into God's own hands. Right, yeah. This is more about you than it is about them. So, we see this kind of prophetic prayer being prayed in a number of different circumstances where it has less to do with vindication or it has less to do with getting back at somebody or it has less to do with anything else like that and it has a lot more to do with God fulfilling 
his purposes and his plans that we find ourselves in. Because that's more important. God's purpose and plan through us is more important than our reputation, is more important than what people think about us, is more important than whether or not people like us. It's just far more important. It's the big picture. And the big picture outweighs whatever it is that we're worried about. Because what do we worry about? We worry about, you know, oh, you think they like me? Yeah, I don't know. People are fickle, too, man. They might like you one day and not like you the other. Look at poor Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> His book didn't sell hardly anything. <laughs> people are fickle. They didn't like him anymore. Bye. Yeah. So, not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to diminish this. I, I do want to, I wanted to bring it home with something that seemed a little more practical so that we could understand it. And that is that if someone, the enemy, can intimidate you through fear to paralyze you, they're going to win. They're going to win. You have to be bolder than that. You have to be more sure of what God's called you to than that. And the only way that I know of for you to be that sure is to really get a hold of God's will and His purpose for your life. And once you have that, hang on to that. I mean, just hang on to it. Hang on to it. And don't let go of that. Because that's so much more important than the little things that come our way. So much more important than the threats of whoever it is that's going to make us look bad. So much more important than that person that is going to make us seem like we're a bad person or whatever that is. But to go about and be all about what God has for you and through you. And let Nehemiah be a good example to you. He just kept going. He's going to keep plowing. What if this comes your way? I'm going to keep plowing. What if that person badmouths you? I'm going to keep plowing. What if these guys attack you from the other side? We'll fight them off and keep plowing. We're going to keep plowing. That's what God called us to. That's what God called me to. And just keep going. Anybody have any questions? I'm like a minute early. <laughs> Anybody have anything? Comments? Alright. Let's pray. So I encourage you to respond. Heavenly Father, I, I just ask you that uh, we would be a people of single-minded devotion to you into what you have for us. Pray God we can get a hold of that. For those of us that are drifting right now, I pray that we can catch hold of what it is you have. Stop trying to make it about what we want, but to somehow finally accept what you really have for us. I know we like to pretend it's a mystery so we don't have to do it but most of us kind of have an idea about what that is. And so I pray that we'll take a hold of it. We'll take a hold of it both hands and say, yeah, your plan, 
your will, your purpose for me. And get to it. And just get to it. God, we put your cause into your own hands tonight in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the comunidad. Yeah, see, there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.